I think most people have probably heard this quote, so it might be a little bit cliche, but I think it really paints a beautiful picture as to the importance, right? We can go weeks without food. We can go days without water. We can go minutes without air. And so that to me kind of is like this hierarchy of like, well, we should probably start with breath and then we should look at nutrition and then we should look, oh, sorry, hydration and then look at nutrition in that kind of order. But I think a lot of people forget the breath aspect. We really focus in on diet. We focus in on movement practice, but a lot of people in my experience just kind of think breathing's too simple, right? Why? Like we want the thing to be complex for it to be effective. And I think breathing is the most simple thing, but almost also the most kind of foundational aspect. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Movement Matters with me, your host, Colin Kurtz. And today, our guest is Campbell. Campbell, Mr. Breathwork. It's kind of his name, actually. Uh, It's a good name. He is a breathwork coach extraordinaire, to say the least. And we haven't met in person, but we're planning to. Um, The history of our relationship goes back to last August. Uh, We just connected on this thing called social media, and I'm very glad we did. And he was in Australia at the time, and we definitely talk about that um, briefly, but effect and and appropriately and uh, gracefully, I would say. We we talk about it well. Everything we he's a very articulate and enjoyable person to talk to and listen to talk with and listen to and i hope you find that very quickly um but yeah australia is a part of what we discuss in all contexts so if you're looking for something more current events related you're gonna get it <clears throat> um but we mostly dig into what this whole breath work quote-unquote breath work thing is all about and i'll just say that Wim Hof comes up quite a bit in the beginning, um, and with that, Campbell is a Wim Hof instructor, so that's that's a big part of why. But I think he mostly is doing, like, as most of us eventually choose to and discover is the appropriate approach, he's just his own coach. He's, he's just a breathwork coach. And I think he's a fantastic one. And soon enough, I'm going to probably benefit from having some guidance and coaching from him myself. We're going to meet at the here at the river because he's on the other side of Jersey and I'm basically here on this west coast of Jersey. And we're going to meet in the river. <laughs> and uh, if you're intrigued by that, you're probably going to be able to join us. Just mention that you want to join us and you will be able to. It'll be a group event. So what else, what else, what else about Campbell? Um, I want to touch on this fact again about Australia. He mentioned a book called Sand Talk. And you're going you're to hear about that at the end. It's called How Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. So I'm mentioning that because we go from 
the most, again, the top priority, air, to this broad and arguably as broad a context as possible. And by no means are either of us experts. I'm not an expert on anything, quote unquote, Native American or indigenous in general. And neither is he with respect to Native Australian cultures or Aboriginal cultures. Yet we're allowed to discuss and we're allowed to acknowledge our respect and appreciation and the, the reality that there's a lot to learn in relate, with regard to these. Um, yeah, there's just a lot to learn here and we're open to learning it. And it it's wonderful to me how the conversation is sort of bookended with the, the simplicity of breathing all the way to the most macro and micro components of <laughs> the soil and, and microorganisms and, and dirt itself, the ground, to the cosmos and the universal and, and, or the, yeah, we'll say universal. With such ease and such almost, it to me was dance-like because it was not, there's nothing necessary about it. It was just what happens. It's just so, there are all these cliche phrases, organic. This, this, these are the kinds of interests that just are inevitable when you dig into that which is ubiquitous and relevant for all of us, this thing called reality. And that's what, that's what Campbell and I are here for. And it's, it's good stuff. I'm grateful, and I'm grateful to have been able to talk with him. And I look forward to meeting him and taking a bath in the cold winter river. <laughs> And you're welcome to join us. Um, and if you want to bring any food, especially if it's a Saturday, I'm going to suggest that you stop by Native and pick up a dozen donuts for us. Jay will probably let you have three boxes of four, especially if you mention that you're bringing them to Colin and company. He'll probably draw a sneak, a creepy little face on it on the box. Uh, or if you're lucky, and then you can bring it on over to the river so we can have ice, fire, and tasty treats. We're sponsored by two companies that sell baked goods, people, so I'm going to have to mention donuts a lot, all right? Don't just eat donuts. I'm not saying that, but you're if you want to have a donut, have a donut. <laughs> you might also want to make it a duck donut. Those are pretty damn good, too. Um, snow is coming back down. We all heard it was about to, it was going to come. I think I'm going to, I'm going to go out for a walk and then hunker down for the night. I hope you are hunkering down somewhere or driving somewhere and you're going to enjoy this exploration with Campbell and Colin. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Be well. Um, so yeah, I did a little bit of searching just to find like a nice cacao and I just kind of replaced some of my morning coffees with it, but I just found this one called cacao lab that send you the four elements. So there's an air, a water, a fire and an earth, and each one is blended with some other kind of botanicals. 
So I just grabbed the fire one, which is with turmeric and cayenne pepper. But there's one with like moringa and chipotle. There's one with hibiscus and cardamom, and they're really, really nice. I'll drink those. I'll have to. Yeah, they're good. And they come in like a little, like each one comes kind of like a block of chocolate, but there's a guided meditation inside. There's a little kind of passage about which element it is. So they're really, really nicely done. Well, that is the sweetest cacao I can only ever imagine. And I hope to have, <laughs> I'll ask you to send me the, uh, the brand and all that later on. My herbs for, for our um, saunter today are primarily dandelion and ginger, but I also apparently have some dried lime slash black lemon. Apparently that's the same thing. Rosemary, tangerine, chili peppers. That, that that's what makes up this organic carbonated treat that uh that I am having at the moment. Citrusy goodness. It is actually really good and um no sugar. Not that I don't have sugar in my world at times, but no sugar in these. They're they're really good. And this local cafe sells them. Phenomenal. Oh, nice. Um <clears throat> yes. Hello. <laughs> I love doing epis- I love doing these in general, but I especially love when literally the first conversation of the podcast with somebody. It's a lot of fun. I was thinking as I actually was just driving over because I worked from home for most of the morning. Some of the people you may know with whom I've had conversations like these. Casper, is that a home? Yes. Yeah. Thought it would be sort of similar talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> or at least you guys would have you would know each other. And Erwin LaCour was a fun one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just knowing some similar folks and obviously Wim. Um, but yeah, the little bit that we just prepared or that we just chatted before hit and record there, I mentioned doing some things differently, not just in time, but like time of the episodes, but trying to be more specific. I'm I'm thinking about telling a story more with this season. And part of why I'm glad we're connecting so early in the year and early in this season is because the theme, of course, will be air and breath. And what do we need more? What do we always need, Campbell? What is the one thing that everybody always needs, no matter what, no matter when, no matter where? <laughs> I think you've easily led me into the answer there. But for me, it's definitely <laughs> breath, um, which is synonymous with energy and synonymous with kind of life force. And I think most people have probably heard this quote, so it might be a little bit cliche, but I think it really paints a beautiful picture as to the importance, right? We can go weeks without food. We can go days without water. We can go minutes without air. And so that to me kind of is like this hierarchy of like, well, we should probably start with breath and then we should look at nutrition and then we should look, oh, sorry, hydration and then look at nutrition in that kind of order. But I think a lot of people forget the breath aspect. We really focus in on diet. We focus in on movement practice, but a lot of people in my experience just kind of think breathing's too simple, right? Why? Like we want the thing to be complex for it to be effective. And I think breathing is the most simple thing, but also the most kind of foundational aspect. Yeah, I did lead you into that and you <laughs> you took it bait and switch. Uh, <laughs> the prioritization is the key. Yeah, what is actually back in sometime in maybe mid or fall of 2020, my one friend gave a presentation and it had to do with priorities. And he asked the group of people, it was a group of guys actually, um, what is the top priority that we all share and, and what is it that we all need the most no matter what? And that was kind of his point. Like nobody said air. I was like, of course it's 
there. There is no, there literally is no other answer. You can, everything else is at least secondary to, to air. And how often do we respect that? Yeah. Of course, yeah. that's, your, that's your whole world. <laughs> that's my whole mission <laughs> is to get people to, yeah, to at least pay a little bit more attention. I'm, I'm a huge fan of awareness um, in every sense of the word. And I encounter a lot, especially in the kind of breathwork world. Um, a lot of people associate breathwork with this kind of like conscious practice that we do, right? And to me, breathwork is every breath you take if you do it with intention and with awareness, right? Instead of waiting, like you have a stressful day and instead of waiting until the end of the day where you can light the candle and have your music and be in your space to do your breath work, what about while it's happening, right? Awareness of breath while you're in a situation that's perhaps difficult or you're experiencing pain or whatever it is. So my whole intention is really to take away that separation of a practice that we employ versus a way that we live. So to sort of demystify, if you will, things that maybe unintentionally come across as like um special <laughs> or uh complicated but certainly you're demystifying and simplifying that which inherently is pretty straightforward right yeah i mean it arguably it, it should be the simplest thing that we do um and, but a lot of us do it wrong yeah and involuntary and and relatively effortlessly unless you want to do it with effort and on purpose and of course, we'll talk about whim, and we've we've texted a bit with respect to our backgrounds in XPT, and and certainly do want to hear about Australia too, for what it's worth. But um, in no particular order. But yeah, I always enjoyed when when I was introduced to whim, and then explored more of of that method, so to speak, just becoming more aware of the inherent simplicity and the. Re I believe the, <clears throat> although he doesn't push the nasal part, just prioritize deep, slow nasal breathing deep slow full nasal breathing and of course you don't have to book time for that <laughs> exactly you don't book time for that hopefully you don't have to book honestly i think hopefully you don't have to book time for that so the movement and the mechanics hopefully integrate seamlessly with that but i'm guessing in your your professional experience you account you encounter this where people are are not necessarily aware of the simplicity and so yeah you're nodding so awareness of that is extremely important yeah it's kind of where i start with everyone regardless of where they're starting from right and what their intention is or the dysfunction that's arisen in their life where they're seeking help if you're not aware of it you can't fix it right what good is a tool if you don't know when to apply it and i think people gloss over that step a little bit. We have this desire to be like, give me the tool, right? Give me the shiny thing that I can use instead of understanding, well, when do you need to use that? And what can you do to not need the tool, right? If you're aware of how you're breathing all the time, perhaps you don't let yourself get to the point where you then need to apply a principle or practice to get yourself back to homeostasis. So kind of this awareness to me is, is the simplest, but also the most profound and also difficult part of the practice that I think a lot of people miss um, when they jump for, like, I want to learn the Wim Hof method. It's great. It's a really wonderful practice, but how you take the other 22,000 breaths in a day is much more important than how you take this 100 breaths. So let's build that foundation first and then add in the cool shiny tool as a bit of an adjunct to progress and, and optimization 
Yeah, because really, how often are you going to climb Kilimanjaro or swim hundreds of feet below? So. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully a few times, but maybe not uh, all yes, the time. Yes, <laughs> no, of course, of course, hopefully. And and if so, great, I'll do it and utilize the, the tools that you're you're learning. And most likely not most of the time. Most likely most of the time it'll just be the mundane, if you will. Yeah, which which we can make a lot better. Like I like the way you kind of touched on it. My little um, motto, I guess, is low, slow through the nose. Um, yeah. However, and, and just yeah. building on that, right, is really the foundation of optimal breathing or functional breathing. And an avenue that I really like to dive down is like better breathing is not really about better breathing. It's about better everything else, right? Your kind of all the other systems in the body, your autonomic nervous system, your gastrointestinal system, your cardiovascular system, your lymphatic system are all kind of reliant on the function that your diaphragm's playing and, and the way that you're breathing. So I think some times I encounter this point of people like, well, I don't want to, I don't need to get better at my breathing. But it's like, but <laughs> what about all these other systems? Don't you want to improve those? Well, the easy way in is by optimizing your breathing. Yep. And it's inherently free, just like the cold, inherently free. Um, the air is more free than cold water, but cold water, <laughs> is in, yeah, cold water is essentially free as well. Cold air is essentially free as well. Yeah, the I, environment. Yeah, the environment. I assume, <clears throat> hopefully not incorrectly, you, you dabble with the, uh, the cold stuff here and there. I do. I'm a big fan. Although I'm a, I'm a new convert. Well, relatively new, but I grew up in a, a part of the world that's the tropics, right? It's hot. It's usually 90 to 100 degrees and 90 to 100% humidity. So I'd always despise the cold. Right? I could never get warm and I just didn't like it um, until I came across the Wim Hof method and I hiked a mountain in the snow and a pair of board shorts. And that kind of just completely transformed my perception of what my body's capable of in certain environments. So obviously curious where you grew up. I'm, I'm not assuming incorrectly. It's a part of Australia. Yeah. yeah okay. So a, a town called Cairns, which is up on the Northeast coast of Australia, um, up in the tropics, the rainforest. More tropical area. Okay. Uh, and also was this a group hike? Was this one of these? Yeah. So this was part of the instructor training, oh, um, okay. the master module where you spend a week in Poland. Um, and the right. kind of pinnacle of that week is you hike Mount Chineska, which is on the border of the Czech Republic and Poland. Um, and I can't remember, I don't know what the conversion is to Fahrenheit, but it was minus 15 Celsius at the top, um, which is pretty damn cold. I can double check that real fast, but it is very cold. And that's exactly what I assumed you did. Yeah. Which Bravo really just you. like, <laughs> it, it, it was it was such a, a mind shifting kind of experience because it wasn't as though my what I kind of thought was it's approximately happen is, five degrees. No, wait, yeah, minus fifteen degrees Celsius. I think it's about five degrees Fahrenheit, which is colder than it is where we are right now. It's colder, yeah, than, yeah, and it's probably like twenty. It's like twenty where I am right now. I'm guessing it's about the same for you. It is, yeah. But what I thought it was going to be like, because you kind of have this um, plan of like, oh, the weeks looks like this, you do these experiences and you know, you're doing the hike up the mountain to the summit. And I just thought it was going to be like, grit your teeth and just kind of struggle your way through and get to the top. 
And it wasn't like that at all. Like it was smile on your face. I felt warm. I felt connected to the group of people around me and there was no struggle at all. Um, it was just this kind of complete acceptance and surrender, if you will. It was like, oh, my body is fine to do this if I stop struggling, if I stop resisting, if I stop trying to experience a certain way. It's like your body knows exactly what to do. I haven't had the pleasure of doing it, hopefully yet, but I assume the pictures I'm imagining are you guys essentially bare-chested, some of you with hats, some of you with gloves, probably all of you with like snow boots, but you're basically in shorts and maybe some backpacks, but it's a big group of you, brave and exactly you know, right. bare-chested with Neil. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so everyone in a pair of shorts and shoes. Um, like you said, some people have hats, some gloves, and you got a backpack with your warm clothes um, oh. in there in case something goes wrong or kind of on the way down. But they're actually, <laughs> the, the leader instructors were a little bit sneaky. Um, they kind of set these, well, maybe it was self-imposed expectations of what was going to happen. So we were kind of told you get to the summit and then you put on your jacket and stuff and then you hike back down. So we kind of all, we got to the summit and everyone's cheering. Yeah, we did it. And you kind of let go of that deep focus that you need to be in to stay comfortable in that environment. You're like, I'm getting my clothes back on now. And they kind of went, wait, we're actually going to hike back down to the lodge and then you can put your clothes on. So then it was this like, oh, oh you crap. just gave like, away a trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, now I have to, to re kind of gain that sense of connection and, and focus, which once you let it go, it's very much harder to get back than if you just kind of kept it, which I think was probably the intention. Um, they actually breathe, did it a couple again. of times. Yeah. And you bring it back, but so you then have to kind of get your kind of focus back and get back down to that area where you are in an environment that you can kind of like, Oh, I can, I don't have to to hold on and, and kind of keep that strong sense of focus. Um, it was, yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. And did you just say you did this multiple times, this whole path? No, just the once, oh, okay. uh, but they, they played that little trick on us a couple of times. Oh, got it. How far up and down is this about time-wise? It's about a four-hour hike. The whole up and back? Yeah. So from the the lodge where we all stay, I think it was about an hour's drive to the base of the mountain and then about a two and a half hour summit and then about an hour and a half back down. Yeah. That's a hell of a journey. Yeah. It was pretty, it was amazing. And the the one thing I loved about it, right, there was a group of, I think, 35 of us Mm -hmm. and it was if not everyone's making it, no one's making it, right? It wasn't each individual for their own intention. It was like the whole group summits or no one summits, yeah. which I think was a beautiful kind of energy to put through that group that instead of I need to look after me, it's like we're all in this together. Yeah, and I, I read Scott Carney's book. That was how I actually found out about all of this, essentially. It was right around, it was in 2016, I forget what time frame, but I had never heard really... I'd heard of the Iceman, but never heard really about Wim. And then I, of course, everything changed after I read that. And he described the experience with, I guess, a probably fairly similar group going up to the top of Kilimanjaro when he did it. And and people didn't all go. And Wim, I gather, told some of them to go back. It wasn't like, just do it no matter what. Like, tough it out. There's, there's a lot of um, care put into it to say the least. Plus, that's a lot higher, obviously. That was the yeah. case. <laughs> and I remember that part. And uh, yeah, there's no there's no denying it takes practice. Uh, I'm, 
but it becomes part of your foundation to say the least and there therein lies the point you change you shift and you're able to change uh, you change how you relate to other people of course yeah and i think the really like interesting thing that i took away from the mountain is right like what's each individual's mountain right not everyone wants to go hike in the snow without a shirt <laughs> and a lot of the practice that i do is not so i can go and hike a mountain <laughs> Um, that right. just happened to be the challenge that was put in front of us, right? I, I well, you know you kind can, of, knowing you yeah, can. Yeah, you can, right? And having that kind of potential. But I, I often pose to people, what's your ice bath, right? Like, And that ice bath mindset is a really nice thing to take away that it might be a presentation. It might be a difficult conversation with your partner, right? These things that we think Probably are going be. to be hard. <laughs> it's like that can be your that can be your mountain, that can be your ice bath. And taking that mindset into it, um, I think just look changes the way we look at challenge. Absolutely. I just wrote a brief, I had to keep it to like eight hundred words or less, um, a brief article for a local paper here that I've had the pleasure of working with and they kind of wanted me to unpack like why or where I am, our business here, why we play with the cold, why we like this, why we specifically do ice. Because um, more and more people are getting intrigued, fortunately, seemingly globally. And, and I love that. So exciting. I, I hope it just continues in that way. Um, but I think I took a, a, a surprising spin on it. Not surprising to you and me, but a surprising spin on it to the editors. Because I didn't, I mentioned things only as like a list like there are benefits of course um i can't speak to them truly too in depth like how does brown fat develop um what's going on with your mitochondria what's truly happening in your vagus with your vagus nerve and you mentioned lymphatic system and you can google all of that and you'll probably find better information than i can provide in an 800 word article what i really want you to take away is the awareness and the the increased capacity that you can the shift in your perspective is the key and the real why. And I'm pretty sure it's Wim's why, which is why he's had such a powerful effect. It's not yeah. that important to most people to understand their mitochondria <laughs> in my experience. It's, <laughs> it's I couldn't agree more. It's actually quite interesting. <laughs> what you just wrote is kind of how I frame my workshops, right? I sure. well, of course, some I've been people, paying attention. That's why we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> some people do want like the mitochondrial biogenesis and they want to ramp up dopamine production. Most people want to know how they're going to respond when proverbial shit hits the fan, right? Yeah. You get into an ice bath, you are in that fight or flight situation and you can practice <laughs> self-regulation. So I kind of frame my workshop in that way of like, here are this huge laundry list of benefits. Great. What you're actually going to learn is how you respond in a very difficult situation. And you can now practice it yeah. because the way you respond in an ice bath is probably the way you respond in a variety of different difficult situations. So I love this concept of cross stress adaptation, which kind of says the way you respond with one stress is the way you respond with all the other ones. So I always think about this in terms of breath work as well, like the physiological stress right? You sitting in that state where you feel your body going, I need to breathe, right? That physiological stress is teaching you how to respond to an emotional stress, a physical stress, a psychological stress because of that concept of adaptation. So I, I often joke, right? The idea of an ice bath is not to get good at ice baths. It's to get good at stress. Yeah. 
I agree. Yeah, yeah. And XPT just, I love how all the different sort of brands or, or flavors it took have have been birthing and and great if it becomes more normal amen i i think i've actually the last episode um i did with somebody locally we were discussing power and this is a major tangent that we don't have to go down but i would love if we prioritized giving power and and the context are vast but if we're giving power to people to me <laughs> i joke but i kind of mean it the capacity to sit in the ice to me would be foundational for whether or not you deserve power. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'd love that. I think that would be a really power, a really good, uh, priority. So, um, yeah. And XPT adds the pool part, which are you familiar with how they, they do? Yeah. That I've not, I, I mean, I've done a little bit of my own just from kind of watching XPT stuff. I took a couple of kettlebells into the pool at home <laughs> Um, and it's, it, it's such a, I mean, it's so good. You add that layer of stress. And I think, again, it's like, can I learn to work under pressure and whatever that pressure is, that pressure is, am I underwater? Am I under a cardiovascular alert? Like whatever the pressure is, it's just like, can I stack on a little bit more pressure and adapt? Right. And even Laird, um, who is, you know, and Gabby for that matter, who've spoken very publicly about all of it they actually did a subtle thing that a lot of people unless you were there from the beginning i was fortunate enough there i am still surprised at how it all worked out but to be one of their first coaches one of their first like um 60 some coaches because they just launched this a couple of years ago this whole brand and it started off as extreme performance training but they subtly shifted it to exploring performance training all right i didn't know not, that yeah well and not not in any, like, there was no disclaimer to it. They just started saying it differently. Like when Laird was on Rogan, he said exploring. He didn't say extreme. We were all introduced to it as extreme performance training. I think partly because the extremism is it's not really that captivating, um, whether it's from marketing or branding or even just talking about it. It's like the exploring capacity is the fun, the discovery, the, the learning, and maybe even the play the inherent possibilities to be more playful arise as well. Play and stress can go hand in hand, I guess, is the sort of point there. The capacity to be more playful because you know you're not going to get, quote unquote, stressed out in the conventional sense. Yeah, it kind of like expands your capacity or ability to access the full spectrum of what's available to you in the full spectrum of environments that you might be in. Um, Wim often says like getting comfortable in the uncomfortable or finding comfort yeah. within the discomfort, which is like being able to play under stress is the exact same thing to me. I think that's such a and minute tweak, but really changes the kind I of think way. it's huge. I think it's why yeah. they probably did it without necessarily explaining it in because just that yeah, one word exploring yeah. your capacity. I think, yeah, just sets it different of like, let's find the extreme and go there. Yeah, which is Laird's background, but it's like, oh, for for the majority of us, it's probably more interesting to, or more um, inviting and inspiring to explore. <clears throat> Plus, yeah. extremes are, yeah, they're implicit. <laughs> the edges <laughs> are implicit. Not to randomly just jump over to it, but I am curious about Australia. And when we met, which um, was last August, you know, met, so to speak, um, it, it's great. Yeah, it was just a random connection through the whole thing, the whole social media thing. And uh, you were in Australia. 
Correct. Obviously, you're in Ocean City now. You go back and forth every year. Is that yeah? We kind of for the last couple of years. My wife is from the kind of Philadelphia area, and me being from Australia, yeah. we do six months in the U.S. and six months back in Australia. Yeah. Um, and we've somehow met, managed to continue doing that over the past couple of years. It was a little bit, obviously, more difficult than usual, and we got kicked off our usual timeline. But we did manage to go back um, in 2020 and 2021. Well, I didn't want to twist your arm for today, but just you know, we're only like 90 minutes drive from you. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to scoot on over to the other side of Jersey. We're just at the Delaware River, buddy. Just I definitely well, she, uh, my wife's parents, my in-laws actually live in Langhorn, so even closer. So yeah, we're actually there exactly. quite a bit. So I'm definitely going to pop in and say hello. I hope you do. You're here until maybe what is it, June or? We're probably hanging. We're actually we've got a baby on the way who's coming at the end of March, so we're going to hang a little bit longer. Um, Your first? So we'll till, yeah, first one. Congratulations. So we'll probably be here until maybe September, October. I hope you come over. It's not that I far. Will. If you have a car, even if you don't, you're able to walk. You're a good hiker. <laughs> um, are you going in the ocean at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's always, it's such a, it's funny. I know you're on the beach. I've seen plenty of pictures of you on the, on the beach. Yeah. We've been getting in. It's, it's so nice. Like for me to do my cold exposure in cans, it's like, go get my portable ice bath, go and buy 25 bags of ice, fill it up. Here I just strip off and jump in the sea. Like it's so much better. And there's that element of kind of the, it's really interesting to me when I get in my little portable ice bath, which is a very controlled environment versus stepping into the ocean where there's waves and there's wind and like it's just different it's to me it's it's not even as cold it's so much harder and it's not (laughs) as cold right i have my ice bath at home at two degrees the ocean here is at six or seven degrees so arguably it should be easier but it is not right and and to me it's like so much more of a challenge to just get into the ocean and slapped in the face by a wave and regain your composure well, if you come over, we'll we'll build a fire at the river and we'll get in the river. That's what we often Ooh, yeah, do. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, we haven't done it yet this winter. We were, <clears throat> last um, winter we, we did it in, in the snow. It was fantastic. And yes, it's so much harder. When we do the ice baths here, the air is 60 degrees probably, normally. And yeah, that's a huge difference. Such a yeah. huge difference. Plus, we're literally next to the 200 degree sauna when we do it here. So it's different to say the least, <laughs> but it's, it's something I think, and I mean, if people that do follow the Wim Hof method would understand this, but it's not something that's portrayed as much as the other elements, but a huge component of it is reconnecting with nature, right? It's not just yeah. that it's cold. It's that getting back out into the environment, in which you evolved, right? It, it's so interesting to me. I don't know if you've been to ocean city, but in the summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. It right. is, Briefly Just mentioned that. Yeah. Heaving with people, right? You can't find a spot on the beach. I go down here every morning and I watch the sunrise by myself and I have a swim and there's not a soul on the beach until May, June, right? So oh, there's barely anybody once the once it's fall. Yeah, because it's a little bit cold, right? It's a little bit uncomfortable. So people go, uh, not gonna eat. like to me, it's so interesting that we use the well, most people here use the beach for three months of the year. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's that's the Jersey thing. That's the Jersey way. <laughs> that is our Jersey way. Yeah, I grew up going to, we would go to Ocean City and all the other ones up and down. So yeah, I know where you are. Um, used to love that boardwalk as a kid, in fact. <laughs> yes, you're right though. And <sighs> nature's a 
it's a it's an interesting word. I often qualify that, and this could be a fun thing to go down uh, to unpack, but who knows? Um, I often find myself qualifying that as as, as distinct from habitual or um, like a tendency or habitual or an instinctive, like natural is not to me synonymous all the time with that. I think what we're often exploring with people is changing that which is habitual to that which is natural and maybe synonymously instinctive. There, There are instincts and the instincts are... I'm still very curious about those, or I'm going to always be hopefully curious about those because they fascinate me. There are things that just sometimes happen without my, um, yeah, they they seem completely involuntary and I I can't imagine that's not instinctive, especially with movements. Like how, I don't even know what I just did there sometimes, but okay, there you go. But natural to me is a, is a word that people use a lot. You did, and I'm just, I'm qualifying here. Um, and I think what they mean is more habitual than yeah. natural. That's the long and the short of what I'm getting at. I think it's a really interesting insight, right? Because as you were saying that, it but you just hear it all the time, right? Thinking, yeah. And people think natural as something I do all the time, right? The life that most of us live is far from natural, but because it's become the norm, we think, oh, it's natural for me to get up and drive my car to this office and sit at a desk for eight hours. Like that's not natural. You do it all the time. So like you said, it, it's perhaps now more innate or habitual, but I, I, I've never actually thought of that distinction, but you've put it in such a nice way that you can't help but think the way we use that word, perhaps it's gotten, as we have gotten away from what it actually means of nature. Well, most of what I do on a like, day-to-day, uh, moment-to-moment <clears throat> um, in terms of exploring with clients is about mechanics and movement specifically, and that's more my foundation with professionally so breath work so to speak it it goes in hand with that but the foundation is mechanics and and making movement easier honestly is is kind of the priority and i believe it inherently naturally (laughs) is but what i specifically hear people often say like that's not natural to me and i and we play with that it's like okay hang on a second i think what you mean is it's just not normal or habitual it's just not your current tendency so yeah i'm i'm I've explored that distinction a lot and I it's a te- I like testing it out. It seems to be consistently valid so far. <laughs> so yeah. what is natural then? <laughs> is it <laughs> but you go like so let's jump to another extreme because this reminds me of something that my my dad prompted me to think about a lot growing up. Um not because he had the answers but it's just and not even intentionally was he catalyzing the questions. It was just what is natural for humans? I don't think we're meant to necessarily live outside and just, um, we're not bears. We do, I am wearing a very nice wool sweater on purpose. You're not naked. You're not, we're in these walls. So the that's the cool thing and the hard part to really not just wrap our heads around, but um, uh, understand on a larger scale is, yeah, so what is natural on these broader scales that are clearly relevant to all of us, but it goes beyond there's breathing, there's movement, <laughs> there's nourishing your meta, there's taking care of your met- metabolic systems, et cetera, et cetera. Then what? <laughs> it's very varied and very diverse. Um, yeah. I think a nice way to think about it, or well, personally what I do is like, can we, I guess, use nature 
in however we want to interpret that word, as an antidote to the unnatural life that we live, right? So by nature, that might, right, let's use, we're both sitting in front of a screen, which gives off artificial light. And if we kind of on this all day, not natural, right? Can I get up at sunrise and watch the sun come up and perhaps watch sunset engaging with nature to mitigate the unnatural world of me staring at a screen for eight to 10 hours a day? And, and same with movement, right? Do I have to sit at a desk for eight to 10 hours a day? Can I move in a natural way or the way that my body inherently was designed to mitigate the effects of being in a prolonged crappy posture for a long time? So to me, it's kind of like this little condensed version of something that maybe we would do better to have more of, but it's not accessible to everyone, right? I, I think we sometimes are at risk of like- Which part's said, not accessible? Because I'm, I'm very interested in that. To, like, to me, it would be easy, but also a little bit kind of, it's less, less realistic to say, all right, well, you should spend eight hours outside moving throughout the day, not sitting at a desk. And people say, well, I've got a job, right? Right. So it, so it sounds like you're not really on the same level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, all right, well, <laughs> what can I take from the natural world and perhaps condense it down into something that is accessible for you? Can you wake up and step outside for 10 minutes in the morning and get that natural sunlight in your eyes? Because your biology depends on it. Right. And the further away from that we get, right, I wake up and I start checking emails and I don't step outside at all for some people, you're going to get further and further from what your biology requires to express itself in a happy, healthy way. And so for me, and I think what it sounds like for you with movement is how can I restore what your body has done for eons, right? in the condensed little concentrated version that's going to give you the most bang for your buck. Because I'm sure if you told a lot of the clients that come into your gym, I want you to quit your job and just move all day, <laughs> they'd be like, great, I'm going to find a different gym with a guy that's not so crazy. <laughs> right? It's not realistic for a lot of people. So how can we take a small version of that that's going to give them some latent benefits? Right. We're always needing to consider and, and maintain the awareness of what's realistic with what's possible. And, and that is, yeah, I think that is the primary context that we're having to consider when we talk about what's natural and what are we going to do about it on every scale? Because, yeah, I think the worst thing that happens, especially in the quote unquote wellness or whatever world we supposedly are engaged in professionally. Um, the worst thing is seeming um, disconnected or or like we're not really in the same, like we're not dealing with the same things. And I know I am, and I'm pretty confident you are. <laughs> it's just a question of how are we, how have we chosen to quote unquote deal with it? And the, I guess in a sense, the, sort of implicit point there is that there's there are these tendencies that are not just unnatural but they are having effects that are um just excessively tolerated and that's a choice so yeah it's always interesting to imagine what if enough of us made different choices what would it be different fundamentally and that, I think, is the primary kind of question that drives at least me, and I suspect us. I mean, what if enough of us made these choices? What We don't really know what would be possible. We continue, and 
as we navigate that, yeah, we need to take care of the day-to-day, the literal paying of the bills and managing of the spaces and keeping things tidy. And you're going to be cleaning up baby poop pretty soon and (laughs) feeding another human, to say the least, which you've are probably never really done. I, I have an 11 year old son, so you can ask me if you want anything about that. But <laughs> it, it's, yeah, there's no denying that it's a tricky, um, unique learning process for everyone. And that's why I think what you said is, is so great. Awareness is the key. Don't try to go too fast, one step at a time. What's right in front of you and what what can you manage right away, starting with your breath? Yeah. And I, I just want to rewind to something you just said there. And it's something I think about all the time. Like, what if more people felt better, right? Absolutely. I would kind of, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, <laughs> um, I don't know if many people f- know what it feels like to truly thrive, right? To be at their optimal functioning. Maybe it's not that they've forgotten, maybe they've just never actually experienced it. And that's not an, person's fault it can be a very environmental or situational but i don't think most people well that's not fair to say most people but i don't think a lot of people know what it feels like to just feel really good all the time and i'm putting myself in that basket as well right i inherently feel i'm not at my 100 full potential and that's why i keep pushing and finding these different practices because i want to feel better right when i wake up in the morning and i'm filled with energy and motivation like it feels awesome. Other times I wake up and I just don't have the motivation. So so I know what it feels like to not feel great. And I know what it feels like to have that little hint of what it feels like to be really, really good. And I wonder how many people, like you and I have a lot of practices that we engage in that widen that opportunity to feel really good. I know so many people that don't, right? They don't exercise. They don't eat well. They don't sleep well. They don't respect their lighting environment. Like, I know they feel like shit. <laughs> There's no way they can't, right? But it's probably because they've never felt really good that they don't know what they're missing out on. So sometimes the hard part, I think, is being like, how you feel now is not how you're designed to feel. It's just how you felt all the time. And if we can give you a little taste of what it feels like to feel really good, perhaps that'll help be the catalyst for you making different decisions and taking those little steps in the right direction so that you feel a little bit better every day. Yeah, amen. Yeah, the awareness, because we both like that word, that we generally, all of us, I'll include myself as well, I think it's implicit just being part of our quote-unquote culture, which seems pretty global. And I love the fact that you are from Australia and we can hopefully touch on the potential global details. Um, The Yeah, the implicit challenges are perhaps unnecessary arguably unnatural and we're all dealing with them and the thing that we could be more aware of it sounds like you're saying is we're tolerating so much more than we potentially need to it's we're we've normalized tolerating not feeling arguably optimal or whatever other synonym which you have to just be willing to consider at the very least you have to be willing to consider maybe maybe i am tolerating that and so what it so then what <laughs> yeah then what i mean i think that's you've hit the nail on the head um i don't think i could succinctly put it any better like i i think that's exactly what the case is right with 
tolerated and like you said whether it's a quote-unquote cultural or societal thing or on an individual level but i think we've all we all tolerate an unnatural kind of set of circumstances whether that's enforced upon us or it's something we consciously engage in entertain the idea that we could do better so then the really tricky thing which i was thinking about a moment ago when i tried to like when i was broadening the context is what is natural because i don't think we should try to get rid of the wheel or fire <laughs> or my sweater i like my sweater <laughs> i really love my sweater and i don't have the answer to that it's just not i think assuming that that's a that we really know the answers to that is tricky as well i don't want to go in any particular extreme which one of them being of course getting rid of technology the other one of course on the flip side of that is becoming more cyborg than I or we already are. I don't want either. Neither one of those makes sense or looks desirable. So I don't know what it necessarily means to continue to become more optimal. And if enough of us prioritized that, I don't know. It total. It's a total fantasy. I don't think anybody really knows. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I was actually. It's funny. I was having this conversation with my wife yesterday. We were listening to a podcast. That <laughs> What's was her kind name? Of by like way? Claire. Claire. Got it. Um, that was kind of like the debate isn't pro-tech or anti-tech. We're here, right? We are communicating through like technology, right? It's not pro-tech or anti-tech. It's how are you- And happily, it? I'm enjoying yeah. talking. Me too, you. exactly, right? <laughs> My business more or less runs through social media and the virtual kind of scape that is social media. Like I reach out to people, I engage with people. So for me to say technology is bad is a miss. I'm shooting myself in the foot. But- the way in which I choose to engage with it, that's where I need to take a little bit more personal responsibility and recognizing, is it becoming, like you said, a habitual or instinctive thing that's just, it's a part of me now. Do I wake up and check Instagram? Do I, am I kind of attached to that? Oh, email, like, is it there all the time or can I use it, right? I love this idea of create rather than consume that, use it for what it's worth and where it gives you return on investment of time and whether that is through connection with other people, right? We met on Instagram and I'm glad that we did. And we're probably going to then have an in-person relationship where we come and connect and we shoot the shit and have some fun, right? So it's not to say that it's bad. It, it, I've met so many people through social media. It has given me a huge return on my investment of time. Mm. But for a lot of people, I think we can kind of get sucked into that trap a little bit where we forget that there is meant to be a return on investment, right? It's not just meant to suck our attention away from us. Like, is that attention, could that attention be spent somewhere else in nature, right? Walking out, hug a tree. Or has it <laughs> become this kind of like magnet that I don't know what else to do with myself, so I just turn to technology because it is omnipresent, right? You can't get away from it unless you want to live in a cave. And, and I, I agree. I'm not one, I'm not a proponent for well, But even then, it's a question of how far are you going to, to what extent, to what extreme are you considering something to be technology and, and um, uh, compromising and having a quote unquote negative effect? Because that's what I meant, the wheel and fire. Like you've got to go that far then. Yeah. Like logically you can't, it doesn't make sense. It's not the solution in an absolutist context, in an absolutist sense, which is one of my 
I'm, I'm impressed I didn't use that word yet while we were talking. <laughs> I, I try not. I use it obnoxiously, at least in, in my own mind. But that that's the tricky challenge. Like, of course, even a even the wheel has had arguably negative effects, right? Like roads kind of suck. Parking lots suck. But <laughs> <laughs> they also make it a hell of a lot easier to to get from A to B. Yeah. I mean And just eliminating them immediately would cause unbelievable chaos and suffering. So it Yeah, th these kinds of really important challenge uh, questions I think are they, there's the, the tool that I just mentioned about absolutism is is actually something that just came up even more clearly. And it always comes up very, the, the fun part about working, so to speak, in this somatic world and, and with breathing or biomechanics or all of it together is how we relate to ourselves as bodies, how we think of ourselves, how we even move is often in a black and white kind of way. You can see it's built into habits on a purely skeletal muscular, neuromuscular level, and of course, thought level. It's so deep, <laughs> and it might not have to be, maybe doesn't have to be, but I have no idea what that would look like the, uh, with more of us being aware. I do know what you just said about connecting with each other almost absolutely sure almost <laughs> that that's a primary ingredient to a better future is prioritizing connecting with each other yeah and that's where i think like the one part of let's just call it social media rather than technology as the entire big picture that we think yeah, we're yeah. getting an adequate kind of version of human connection, which I don't think we do, right? Like being in the presence of someone and being able to read their body language and talk and communicate and have your nervous systems kind of co-regulate is very different to looking at a screen and, and viewing the life that someone portrays through social media. And I think people think, well, no, I, I am being social. I am having human connection through this app or this platform. And I think well, it's one, it's how it's designed, right? That's why it is so prevalent. But I think if people can at least recognize, all right, that's the, one. What do you mean by how it's designed? Like the addictive? I, yeah, well, yeah. just to get you to engage in that platform, right? Yeah. So people think, and oh, the this, attention this is my economy, version. right? Exactly. Yeah. But I think the, the more that we think that that is an adequate uh, replacement for actual human connection, then again, the further we get away from nature, uh, the further we get away from like, it, I think we need to remember that if, if we again, just call it technology, this is a very, very recent thing, right? We've been a tribal group of people for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's just in the last 50, 40 years that we can have this global connection that is quite literally in the absence of connection. <laughs> right. And I think it we it would be good that's the that's kind of the point there if we agreed there is no replacing face to face 
exchange of air, uh, the whatever you want to call it, energy, I don't care, the energy of being together, touching, of course, is a very specific detail. There is no replacing it. It is an eternal, it is eternally more potent than anything on a screen. Yeah, agreed. And but I think I that don't think there's a question to that. <laughs> but I but I, I wonder well, and actually I know there are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my maybe it's my pessimistic side, but I, I do think people think it is an adequate replacement. You're right. So yeah. they go, I don't need to go out and socialize because I've got it wrong. right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have fucking sex dolls for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Realized I'm of course I'm wrong there. So yeah. So yeah, making that a priority to me does seem I'm almost willing to bet that that's necessary the, the primary ingredient in addition to these priorities that we've laid out of course that we could we can easily bond over and play with the air the cold movement etc the the foundations of our careers if you will but i i think the communal if you ever wanted to simplify it the community that i can't imagine anything more important really yeah and i think it is this innate thing that a lot of people are lacking um, and whether we're just looking at the last two years, sure, there's been some enforced reasons why people can't connect on an in-person level, but this was happening long before two That's years ago. That's a great segue to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think if people, you know what I mean? Like that. But yeah, going like, on before the pandemic. Yeah, lacking that community aspect, I think has been, and, and whether or not, right, it might be completely independent of technology. It might just be a direction that, humanity has been going whether that's good or bad i would argue it's bad but i think that community aspect um, is so overlooked as an aspect of wellness right being a part of a tribe or a group or connected to other people whether it is your job if you like your job and the people you work with or your family or your friends or a group that you go and do breath work with or the gym that you participate you know what i mean having that element of going and participating in something in a group setting i think not we i think most people get it through their exercise right i go and i participate in a class or i go to a gym not recognizing that it's just even the community aspect is hugely beneficial so if if exercise isn't your jam right where can you get community is it at the local community hall right? i don't know is it dancing is it a language it, where can you find that element of going and meeting people and being in presence of other people i think is critical well, you will be able to, <clears throat> and I really want to hear speak to the differences in terms of at least some countries. I've certainly traveled. I have not been to Australia, uh, nor New Zealand. I know they're not the same. I just think of <laughs> New Zealand as near you, of course, down there. Um, and I'm a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. But I, I've thought in great detail, especially in the last couple of years, um, and largely in part because of Tristan Harris and his team with The Social Dilemma. And of course, he made that film prior to COVID-19 being a thing. So it wasn't about the pandemic. It was about things happening long, well, before all of that. Um, yeah, the, the history of anything is, is much more than two plus years or three years, we'll say. Um, but yeah, I've thought in really deeply about the complex challenges in this country and, and the quote unquote Western world, you could say. And my background actually is my even deeper background is religious studies. So I've paid a lot of attention to um, 
the intended and unintended, and I think conscious and unconscious influences of religious stories and myths, and, and not just Christian, but especially certain Christian impacts, blah, 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 it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same across the world. So I'm curious, <laughs> um, you know, the things that go on in this country in the West, so to speak, don't even though that term really is kind of meaningless in many ways, the West, um, it doesn't necessarily transcend to the rest of humanity. And I'm curious in Australia what you perceive as different in general, and I can also get specific, but community um, I guess, being one specific component. I, I think Australia and Australia, Australia is not a, you know, it's not like one thing in Australia. I'm sure too. It's a big, yeah, place. exactly. <laughs> so I've lived, my dad's from Scotland. So like I grew up in Australia, I spent three or four years living in the UK in Scotland. And now over the past three or four years, I've spent 50% of my time in the U S um, so I kind of see, and it's only since living in the U S Australia is very similar in a way to what I see in the US, but a little bit slower or behind rather, right? So like the stuff that I think happens here eventually comes to Australia. Um, and I didn't want to assume that, like but it does give pop that culture or movies or wherever that influence comes from. Um, I, I see the U Australia to be more alike to the US than I do Australia to the UK, which is interesting because Australia was colonized by the UK. Um, but, and I don't know, that may just be the US's influence on the Western world because it for a long time has been that kind of influential role. Um, but I can only speak to growing up in Australia, but in terms of, I think the difficult Which matters. Part, That's a big deal. Yeah. But the difficult part, well, the, the big difference to me is just the sheer scale, right? Like 350 million people in the US and 23 million people in Australia. And we're roughly the same size. So kind of that scale makes things really different, right? I grew up in a city of 100,000 people. And then a couple of years ago, I moved to New York, which is a city of what, six or seven million, right? It's just such a different scale that I think the opportunity to engage in forms of community is better where there's just a higher density of people, right? There's so okay. much more of these little kind of like fringe things because there's enough people, right? Like, I'm the only Wim Hof instructor in Queensland, which is like the biggest state or second biggest state in Australia. Yeah, Whereas yeah. there's probably four or five Wim Hof instructors in, or maybe more in the Northeast, right? Like, so even little things like that, when I introduce a Wim Hof method workshop, most people are like, what the hell is this new thing? <laughs> Whereas here, there's a lot more kind of, it gets a lot more airtime. And I think that's just based on there's more people that are doing their own research and coming to the same conclusions. So little things like that, I think are interesting that there's either more or less opportunity based on population density for lack of a more specific cancer. I'm sure it's part of it. Yes. And my guess is, of course, not really knowing this for sure, that there's a lot of land in Australia that's intentionally not developed or uh, it is intentionally not inhabited by quote-unquote western folk i really don't like that label i just don't have a better one yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and is that accurate is that like and well and a lot of it the other part of least it of all because it it's hot. uninhabitable um like the whole center of australia is kind of like a giant desert yeah um, I, was some, I forget what the percentage is, and yet we I have think, las vegas but <laughs> <laughs> i think it's something like 70 to 80 percent of the australian population live within 
50 kilometers of a coastline. Yeah. So like around the perimeter of Australia is populated and the whole center is kind of like very sparsely populated. Right. The U.S. is more like Europe in that way, where you can go pretty far from coast to coast and still, whether it's because of rivers and lakes and mountains, um, set up camp. And then, of course, if you can handle the cold or but yeah, there are there are developments in the desert, least of all Las Vegas. So figured out ways. But in Australia, it's not so much. I don't get does it get hotter? Um, Yeah, it's I mean, it's especially we call it the red center um it gets hot it gets hotter than arizona even um yeah i'm not quite sure as hot if not hotter um kind of i wouldn't say it's uninhabitable (laughs) (laughs) but it's not nice put it that way it's not comfortable (laughs) (laughs) i won't i won't bore people with these specifics i guess the what why does this matter um so it's similar, but not the same, of course, and that's good. I don't think we want everything to be the same, which is its own topic on, unto itself. Um, well, yeah, all right. So you're, least of all, one of a few Wim Hof instructors at the moment in Australia. Maybe there'll be more soon. I'm not really that interested in asking about the pandemic unless it something jumps out that you want to just bring up but it's hard not to want to hear if you've perceived differences in how i think you hinted at the fact that you have perceived differences but i yeah definitely okay so i guess that's what i'm (laughs) tiptoeing around i don't want to be presumptuous at all but i remember when we started talking in august I, i around here in particular a lot of headlines would be about Australia in term, from a particular context and, and even Austria, which I have happened to visit just in the last month. Uh, but you guys got a lot of, of headlines with, uh, about something. Yeah. Can you speak to that in any adequate way without me even knowing what to ask? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> the, the first thing that comes to mind, right, and I've had probably a pretty unique opportunity to be both in Australia and the U.S., over the last two and a half years. And the one thing that I thought was very interesting is while I was in Australia, the headlines about the US were the same as while I was in the US, the headlines are about Australia. Oh my God. And when I was in Australia, it wasn't anything like the headlines were saying to a degree. And when I was in the US, again, it was like, oh, like people would be sending me the headlines from the Australian media saying like, what was going on in the US. I'm like, that's not my experience at all. Maybe it is someone else's, but again, when I go back to Australia, people from the US are like, oh my God, are you like locked in your house? I'm like, (laughs) no, I'm not. You know what I mean? So, but certain parts of Australia were, right? Like, so if I was living in Melbourne, they went through the longest lockdown in the world, which I've like, just think is incredibly difficult. And I think there's going to be huge repercussions long-term for people that had to go through that. But where I was, COVID wasn't even there. Right, like we didn't get our first case where I'm from until June last year. Wow, June of 2021. Yeah, holy shit. And so, and but now it's obviously like exploding with Omicron and stuff because, and one of the reasons that Australia was very like well, state by state was kind of locked down, right? Queensland, the state that I live inside, was closed, right? You couldn't get in from another state, so because they'd contained the virus elsewhere. 
no one was allowed into Queensland, which means Queensland had this great kind of run where there wasn't any coronavirus, but at the expense of millions of people that weren't allowed to leave their house for months on end, right? Like, to me, that's just, it's not a fair equation. So lockdown literally means... So in Melbourne, at the height of it, you were allowed to leave your house for one hour a day and you had a perimeter of five kilometers, so three miles. So if you weren't allowed to go more than three miles from your house, you weren't allowed to be outside of your house for more than an hour a day for an extended period of time. Like this wasn't a week, this was months. Or what? Um, You get fined. I think a pretty sizable amount. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was kind of like bat your eyelids at like, oh, $50. I think it was a chunk of money. Um, well, so to be clear, the real kinds of like, no way horror stories that people would like to be hyperbolic about, especially if they have a particular bias. And, and I don't, I try not to, I don't think I do, but it, I, I might, we might expose one. Um, the particular sort of horror stories they would highlight is that like people have been locked in hotels and they're being fed like um, prisoners and uh, yeah. I mean, I, so to come when we left in June last year to go back to Australia, June or July, um, we had to do two weeks of enforced quarantine in a hotel room. Right. I had no window. So talk about that. Yeah. So that no fresh air, no window that opened. We had a little sliver of sunlight that came through in the day, right? So air-conditioned air for 14 days, number one, horrible. <laughs> I mean, I get like, if I'm in an air-conditioned room for a day, I start oh, to get like, I want to just be outside. I like get 14 it, yeah. days, no window that opened. Food was shit, right? You got like, we got pastries for breakfast. How did they Lots. enforce this? You, <laughs> I mean, this is the part that it is kind of like, whoa, this is messed up. Well, that already is you fucked up. landed on a plane. When you landed from the plane, you were put onto a bus. The bus was driven to a special hotel. You were put in your room. You weren't allowed out for 14 days. And you knew this was going to happen. Uh, yeah. And do you want to know the worst part? <laughs> yes, I do. So you have to pay for it. Jesus. And this was because you simply were out of country and you flew back in. Yeah, returning to Australia. So there's a mandatory quarantine if you're returning to Australia. And look, there, I guess, and and this is where like people kind of put their flag in the ground of like who's right and who's wrong and who's better and who's worse. I mean, Australia did, if we just look at, and I'm being very kind of like compartmentalized, the kind of death rate or something, people in Australia would be like, oh, well, it worked, right? Locking people in a hotel room for two weeks was effective because we didn't have a lot of people die. But it's kind of like, well, are we weighing up someone's mental health and emotional well-being versus someone else being ill, right? Who's to say who's right in that equation? It's not, it's not a fair, I mean, it's a question that no one can really answer. But I think we're going to see the kind of cost of locking people in their house for an extended period over the next three to five years. Like, I don't think it's a one and done kind of thing. I think yeah. people are going to have some longer term repercussions that we either didn't weigh up or we didn't care about at the time. And when I say we, I mean the government. <laughs> I had no, I had no say in this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think like it was horrible being in a hotel room for fourteen days. Just like uh, to me, we we're talking about nature. You like, and Claire, I assume, together yeah. at least. Jesus. Yeah. Um, 
so we I mean, lucky in the way that we had each other. Um, and I really heavily lent on my breathwork practice. We did meditation, we did yoga, and we tried to get through that. But what if you went out of the room, like into the hallway? Uh, you, you were forced, you just had to stay longer. <laughs> so if you went outside your room, you were then in like another five days or something. And were there like guards right there? Yeah, there was security on every floor. I don't know. I don't know. That's enough to drive a lot of people to have a psyche, like a psychotic breakdown. Like that is a scenario that many more. I mean, it's let me put my cards on the table if you don't mind, because it's I I don't think it's good to speak of this stuff without being, as you said, compartmentalized or or at least attempt to be objective. And and we don't also need to like dig into this too in depth. We're we're, but it is nice to talk with somebody who has literal firsthand from another country and can think in a similar enough way, which is to say, I think, not be overly biased and not be excessively like, my perception is you're not thinking in any sort of black and white way, or at least trying not to. And I appreciate that. I try to do the same, but I'll, I'll acknowledge I have two vaccines and a booster. I don't mind that at all. I don't have a problem with that. And I also don't have a fundamental problem with people not having that um, as just a like foundational place to (laughs) for anyone listening and to have these kinds of conversations and i'm quote unquote in the wellness industry although i prefer to think of it more as education so i i think that is a good enough disclaimer to say that i'm not coming at this with like one kind of bias um but yeah these kinds of scenarios sound terrifying i can see people being terrified legitimately terrified yeah and i mean the the part that worries me most or that makes me scared is like once they've put that into play are they then going to retract it when it's less of a risk or is it there now right that's the part that are like sure if they identify this is a temporary strategy to mitigate risk or is this a push to see what they can get away with um, and I hope to, I hope I'm not being kind of cynical and pessimistic, but I think it also pays to ask the question, right? And and again, I I don't I don't particularly want to go any further into it because it, it takes That's up not. so much space yeah, and time yeah. anyway. But it's kind of like that the whole big picture. I think it, it pays to ask questions as to is there anything else or is there any other reason why they there might be that push for certain regulations and rules that aren't prioritizing wellness and education. Well, that particular rabbit hole, I actually agree with you is not, I'm not terribly um, interested in because I think we end up just saying, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's dangerous in general to go down there thinking you're going to find the answers because I ultimately don't believe they're yeah, I Whatever. think you just find I, more questions. You find more questions. Or or you become, you develop a confirmation bias, which is even more, actually, I think, problematic. I actually think that's arguably even da- more dangerous long term. I think we can at least just acknowledge that these sorts of, <clears throat> obviously, people have died from COVID, and that's it's ridiculous that we have to put that disclaimer out there. But, and I don't, want to underplay any long potential long-term side effects that people may be dealing with from it there's just no clearly there's no <laughs> you can't ignore the one at the cost of the other like you said the long-term side effects of these kinds of 
yeah, this kind of enforcement, um, it's not going to be subtle. It's not subtle probably already for people. It's not going to be subtle. And that, that does matter. No matter who you are, that does matter. I'm not yeah. saying there's any kind of conclusion you can draw. And drawing conclusions is something I would encourage everybody not to do. But yeah, the questions are extremely significant. No doubt about it. And yeah, that's it. We can leave it at that if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it'd be hard not to at least acknowledge it because it's, I'm so curious given your, clearly you would have a different experience. And I appreciate that. I've spoken yeah. with somebody in, in Austria as well, and they've had a great, uh, it's interesting to hear about what's going on from their point of view too, because that's a, another country that from the US we hear is like really, really strict and they're in their like 20th lockdown and they're not. It's, I think it's their fifth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> how you feeling about fatherhood i'm pretty excited to be honest um it's yeah i wouldn't i would be lying if i said i wasn't also a little bit nervous <laughs> but excitement definitely precedes um that's good overrides though, everything right? yeah i think nerves are a good thing right it, it's kind Especially of as you're own. about to become the most it's going to be the most important role of your life yeah. Right. And, and I think <clears throat> I teach the same thing around like anxiety. It's like, if you can perceive these sensations, right. That's me preparing for something that's very important. Right. When someone kind of like, I get anxious when I have to do a test, right. Well, maybe you could perceive that as your body preparing for this challenge instead of looking through that negative connotation of like nerves or anxiety mean that I'm not ready. It's like, well, maybe that's you getting ready. So I kind of like to look at the if I do have these little hints of apprehension or hints of worry, it's like, oh, that's me kind of preparing, right? That's me checking the boxes and, and getting myself ready to be the best dad that I can be, which excites me. Is Claire feeling ready? Yeah. Yeah. And what did you say is the temp is the probable do spring or did you say uh, March 30th? Yeah, basically. Although I'm I'm kind of spring. already cracking the joke that maybe we'll go into labor on April 1st, but April Fool's won't come till April 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a funny joke for Claire. <laughs> <laughs> My birthday is April 4th. Maybe it'll be April 4th. Ooh. Yeah. It's a good time of year to be born, I think. Yeah, um, it'll be nice, like, coming out of winter and into spring. Yeah. It means summer loving, too. It means you, you two were um, having a good time in the summer. It's actually not to reverse back to where we were, but it's actually a quarantine baby. <laughs> when we're in, locked in the hotel, I wonder. Uh, that's I, when we conceived. <laughs> well, honestly, I just didn't want to. I, I didn't want to make light of the the context, but maybe the government's thinking, "Hey, what's your problem? You have a two hour, you to, have a two week fuck fest. <laughs> <laughs> we need to boost conception rates." Yeah, like what are you whining about? You got two weeks to just fuck. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but it isn't for free, and it also sort of sucks because there's at least, I mean, God, at least a freaking window. Yeah, and some good food. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, we, yeah. but congratulations on, on making the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do you know, I, I forget if you said you're going to have a son or a daughter. Do you, do you uh, know son. That? Hey! We, we kind of found out by accident, but. We we were both actually thinking it was going to be a girl, but then we found out it's a boy. I love it. Do you feel neutral about that, or are you excited? Are you kind of uh, neutral. Okay, I really yeah, I'm happy either way. 
Jonica. All right. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie, Campbell. I think we may have checked we off solved all the world's problems. We may have. Che- <laughs> You're damn right, we did. <laughs> or at the very least, we checked off some really important boxes. The only other topic with regard to Australia and. Again, not that you're like inevitably or inherently some kind of expert, and you also acknowledge that you spend a lot of time in Scotland. I'm always sort of intrigued about the Aboriginal culture too, and how people feel and relate to that. And you, do you have any relevant relationship with that? Um, it's it's something that I'm it, in my kind of more recent years. Unfortunately, I wish it was something that I'd kind of known more about in my early years. But it's yeah, it, it's in. It's actually You're young enough, today. I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's just a fascinating culture. There's, If anyone's listening that wants to have a, a nice insight on it, there's a book called Sand Talk, um, which is this beautiful kind of application of the ancient wisdom of Indigenous culture in Australia, but applied to the modern-day world. Um, it's really, really fascinating. And it's written in a way that is kind of like what is called an Aboriginal culture, a yarn, right, which is just a chat or a talk. So he has yarn, a yarn with like you, Y-A-R-N. A yarn, Y-A-R-N. Um, oh, he goes through this yeah. book and it's kind of, it's a beautiful look at indigenous culture and their systems. Um, I, do a little, I did a little bit of work as a physical therapist out in the community. So I'd go out into the Red Center um, and visit Aboriginal communities and provide physiotherapy services. And it's so, so different to what we would consider a normal or not even normal, but what we know as a hierarchical family system. Like it's just so difficult to get your head around the way that they perceive relationship and the, the family structure, if you will, and how they relate to nature and the earth and and the spirit time. Like it's something that I really want to learn more about because I think it would be a miss of me to live in Australia and not appreciate and acknowledge the 40 to 50,000 years of Aboriginal history that existed before the white man arrived. Um, and I think that's something that everyone in Australia should do. And everyone has their own kind of take on it. But I think there is this depth of wisdom and culture there that unfortunately we're not utilizing to the best of our ability. Um, and you look at, I mean, even the way that they would manage the land is very different to kind of the monocropping industrial agriculture that we do now that just rapes and pillages the land and we wonder why yields are less and the nutrients are less. like well let's look to how they manage the land for forty thousand years maybe we could learn a thing or two because what we're doing now doesn't seem to be working that well but there is that kind of egotistical we know the best and this is the way we're going to do it and we're going to keep doing it this way versus oh we weren't doing it that well maybe we could learn a thing or two Yeah, and there is a lot of overlap, of course, not just with regard to agriculture, if you will, but <clears throat> yeah, how to, what is the cultural relationship with food and the land? There's a lot of overlap in this country, of course, as well, and we don't need to unpack that too much right now. What what did you say though? The time frame was what? How long had they been there before the? Um, it's forty to sixty thousand years. Jesus, um, Aboriginals have inhabited australia which is just i mean it's one of the longest surviving cultures that exists today yeah (laughs) that's incredible that's that's so important wow 
And, and they were very kind of nomadic, right? Like there's, and, and what I think most people don't understand, and this is probably true of many indigenous cultures, but there's not one Aboriginal people. There was thousands of independent tribes that moved in different parts, right? So the Aboriginals that lived in the northern part of Australia were completely different to the ones that lived in the south, different language, different dialect, different kind of cultural and, and spiritual beliefs kind of thing. So it's this huge kind of conglomeration of independent, but not completely independent. There's that unified kind of um, field of understanding, but it is this much more um, small divisions and groups of more nomadic um, tribes, I guess, versus this one kind of uniform culture across the whole of Australia. Well, it's not independent and it's not codependent or excessively dependent it's interdependent Inter, really. <laughs> that's the word i was looking for <laughs> the book is called <clears throat> sand talk and i it came out three years ago um how indigenous cultures not a subtle subtitle here can save the world so yeah it's maybe, I re- one of my friends recommended it to me i just read it maybe a month ago and it just blew my mind i'm gonna go um, it, yeah, it's such it. an insightful way just to look at where we are today and what perhaps we could apply from ancient wisdom to the problems that we face. And it, it's really beautifully done. I mean, he's talking about wisdom from 10,000 years ago and applying it to things like the blockchain and cryptocurrency. Like, you know what I mean? It's such a far reaching oh, wow. um, conversation <laughs> that it's like, whoa. Well, I think built into the. <laughs> Um, narrative, I won't give an adjective, the narrative of the quote-unquote West, since we don't have a better term for it, or our our shared histories, you and you and me, with the, you know, it, with respect to our differences, the narrative is unintended and maybe excessive arrogance uh, in part, and there are a lot of reasons for that, a lot of foundations for that, but I think it is a pretty critical nugget to to pay attention to and and part of what happens there is you think you can figure it all out or control it all dominate it all and maybe for a moment however long that moment may last but it probably isn't forever and it probably isn't as long as you planned because we're not as smart as we may tell ourselves or at least we're not as conceptually gifted as we may tell ourselves and I believe that's part of what a lot of people are um, healing from, but also re uh, remembering about, quote unquote, not all indigenous, I can't speak to all indigenous cultures, I can't speak really to any with great uh, expertise, but at least the possibility of remembering something that isn't arrogant, something that is a little bit more humility-based, something that is a little bit more about allowing, quote unquote, actually we can come full circle to where we started nature yeah i was about to i was hoping you were going there if you weren't going there i was gonna input it <laughs> because i think the one thing and again well, we I'm, both I'm, went there that was both i'm us. no <laughs> expert on indigenous cultures but i think the one thing that pervades and kind of is a part of almost all indigenous cultures is connection to land or connection to nature or that aspect of being a part of rather than apart from um it, it's to me again this kind of i, I think you beautifully put it as arrogance that we can control and we can conquer and we can push back and we're separate from nature and we're not, <laughs> or at least we shouldn't be, or, or we are at the expense of 
how we live our life. But if you look at most indigenous cultures, there's an element of we are part of nature and there's a respect for nature and there's a co-creation with nature rather than me kind of controlling and implementing my stuff on nature. Yep. And the tricky thing at the same time is I still want fire and I don't want to get rid of the wheel entirely. So we have to figure this out. We do. One One step at a time. One breath at a time. Yes. Amen. Now I think we've done it. I mean, I could ask, I could ask you some silly question about Hugh Jackman or whatever, but I think we're good. <laughs> Hopefully we are going to see each other in the Delaware River shortly, but for now. I'd love to do that. It's actually been something over the, like, the last two years. I'm like, where can I get my like, little cold dips when I'm in Northern Pennsylvania? Um, you've answered that oh, question. Yeah, yeah. The river's fun. It's fun. Especially if there's a sauna and a fire. There we yeah not well by the river just the fire the saunas here at Koru the river we can make a fire and we'll have a group there'll be a group of us yeah awesome yeah I'm 100 percent down for that I'll see you soon sounds good thanks thanks Colin well I'm gonna go read that book I already looked for it uh, Sand Talk again just to repeat the name in case you didn't get to write it down I'll put what'll be in other notes as well but Sand Talk how indigenous thinking can save the world. And I just want to say that's that's accurate. First off, indigenous does not have to mean some other culture in the past that we are that we have some um, elusive relationship with. I want you to consider the reality that in a in a very real way you're indigenous to a culture okay it's a it's a term native indigenous there's there's, they make sense and you can also be native and indigenous you know in the future you will be to some group of people you will be part of a you will be part of this culture so whenever I hear that, I think about, like, yes, let's learn. Yes, let's embrace. And part of what Campbell and I did talk about briefly there that I want to just elaborate on is that there's no going back. We're not going to get rid of things entirely, at least. We're not going to reverse everything. There is no some, there's no grand mistake that has to be undone. We need to just learn and keep learning. I don't want to live like the Native Americans lived completely. I don't want to live like the Aboriginal people do or did completely. I don't want to live like anybody I've ever learned about lived completely. There's value in what we can learn for sure. And there's value in what you bring to reality, to our experience right now. And part of that is your thinking. And that is relevant to although I don't really like this phrase, saving the world. <laughs> and uh, you can actually, yeah, I, I think it's fair to quote a particular indigenous wise person. There is no saving the world. And this is a Native American, I'm paraphrasing. There's no saving the world. There's <laughs> making choices that allow for humanity to continue or not. We're not saving the world. 
we are potentially learning how to make human the human experience better for all of us and inevitably that means for all of life and there is no separating the two and there is no ignoring these facts I'll leave it at that. I'm still going to read Santalk and I can't wait to. And I want to know what, and I'm going to learn a lot, no doubt about it, because it's a remarkable culture to say the least. And I want to integrate as much as I can. Yeah. And with that, <clears throat> let's breathe. I don't know yet which guest is going to be next. Um, like I said, I'm being really deliberate about the structure and order here and also people uh, cancel because of snow and things like that. So we'll see, but at least at least you've gotten through three of the episodes of season five here. There will be a lot more and they will be out soon. By the time you get this one, they may already be out. I suspect the next episode will be related to community in particular, but we shall see. We shall see. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for joining us. Bye.